strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Welcome to Strong Voices, coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios on Arana Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911 on Aiken FM in Bruntua Alice Springs and also via the Karma app and online at karma.com.au. Today is Thursday the 1st of August 2019. My name is Damien Williams. Coming up on today's program, in our first story, we will hear about a new initiative from the Menzies School of Health Research on ear health. Ear health. We will also hear about the newly appointed Deputy Treaty Commissioner from the Northern for the Northern Territory. And finally, we will hear about this year's Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair. We will also hear the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. And we'll be right back with more Strong Voices after this. Hey Mob, this is Patrick Johnson and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. A new initiative by the Menzies School of Health Research, Hearing for Learning, will come a, will become a program with the Mala, Malala Health Service Aboriginal Corporation in the community of Menangrida, which aims to train, employ and work with Aboriginal communities based around ear health facilities. Speaking on Calm Radio, Lorena Walker talks to Professor Amanda Leach, uh, the Joint Chair of the Hearing for Learning Initiative at the Menzies School of Health Research. I'm Professor Amanda Leach at the Menzies School of Health Research and I work in the Child Health Division. I've been at Menzies for close to 30 years and started off working as a laboratory scientist in 1988. Actually, I worked in Alice Springs as well in the pathology lab there and then gradually got very passionate about ear health and the microbiology, what was causing ears to be so bad in territory children and moving on there to work out what are we going to do about this issue. That long experience of working in the in the territory, and obviously also most importantly working with Aboriginal people in in community as well. Yes, it's been an amazing career. I feel very privileged, and um, it's given me a lot to think about in terms of what Australia's where Australia's at with you know First Nations and trying to help people in remote community, working with remote communities to really understand what this means for their kids, their learning and their future. And I think to a large extent, I don't think this disease was here really as bad as it is anyway before colonisation. Therefore, I strongly believe that it's a 
a very important issue for Australia to sort out together with Aboriginal people. And that's the thing, like, even when you just mentioned that before, like, oh, yeah, it's just a sore ear, it's nothing, we'll, you know, it will heal. What it does is it does affect children and the hearing loss, just not being able to learn if we didn't have these problems. So can you just tell us a little bit about the Improved Ear and Hearing Plan for the kids in the community of Maningrida? Maningrida will be one of 20 communities that the Hearing for Learning initiative program recruit and we're hoping to have 20 communities across the territory agree join the program by the end of this year. We've been working hard on all the community consultation and getting all of our paperwork ready if you like, ethical clearance, those sorts of things, all of our research data collect processes worked out how people are going to be trained and how they're going to be employed by the project. So it's a joint initiative between a philanthropic foundation called the Balnay Foundation, the Northern Territory Government and the Federal Government. And it was really launched in August at Parliament House here in Darwin by Minister Gunner in August last year. And we've been working on the consultation and collaborative arrangements with the departments and Department of Education as well, Catholic Education and the Aboriginal Controlled Health Organisations. So it's quite a complex governance arrangement that we're now pretty happy we've got right and what will happen will be the concept is that there's lots of things that contribute to to ear disease and and hearing problems. A big part of it is the service provision and primary health care. It hasn't been a high priority. It doesn't kill children. It doesn't get kids really into hospital even but it's life-changing and my co-chair in this project is an Indigenous surgeon called Kelvin Kong and he always says look ear disease is, is not a killer. It's not life-threatening, but it's life-changing because, as you said, the impact even on little, little tiny kids of that social isolation of not being able to communicate in language because they haven't heard the language being spoken enough to learn how to speak it. And then... You know, moving on, obviously, into school where you're learning English and hearing English, very different sounds. Uh, you need good hearing to, to learn another language. Good hearing, play the games, hear the jokes, hear mum and be understood by mum. All of those things, it's sort of a, we call it a bit of a silent problem, really. Uh, it's not well known and understood. So it's been a long road getting to this point, but um, we're very pleased to have this joint initiative where we can start to think about, well, what can happen in community to try and help families to understand this? The health services have a very high staff turnover. They need someone in the community that understands the needs of these kids and their clinical care and their education. We're just working with all those communities. And that's the thing too, I suppose, is having that consultation between community. And you mentioned also working with the the Aboriginal um, health services as well. So it it does um, stretch out like a broad it's not just one certain thing area it's quite a lot of areas coming together for that one thing hey yeah it's exciting because you know we really want to change the ear health and learning trajectory of little children particularly but this is zero to 16 year olds and I think a lot of the teenagers probably have hearing problems that are below the radar they haven't been acknowledged or seen and wearing a hearing aid is not very popular among young kids so we want to be more preventive and prevent them from needing that hearing aid and by having a community person that really understands and gives some given some real critical training certificate training and clinical skills so they can facilitate primary health care service to deliver more for these children that need need better care in their ear 
health, language development, getting to school, because the kids that can't hear often drop out of school. It's a bit of a vicious circle from there. Malala Health Service, Aboriginal Corporation. Um, have you worked a lot with them before? Yes, we've been working with um, Malala and the Managrita community for many years, On still on ear disease, but yep. in tiny wee babies from one month of age trying to prevent the disease from taking a hold in the first six months of life. So that's been a big project for us there. And we also had another project for slightly older kids with runny ears. It was called I Hear Better, about using antibiotic drops and ear washes and medicine, oral medicine, for those kids with chronic suppurative runny ears. And there's still way too many of those children in remote communities at the moment with that really severe end of the disease spectrum. So that has a whole range of different presentations, ear disease. It's not just one thing. Yeah. And it's certainly not just caused by one bug. It's caused by potentially hundreds of different bugs that can cause an ear infection. So it makes it very difficult for vaccine antibiotics to work. So prevention is always better than, than cure, but mm-hmm. we want to also make sure that the services under, understand these children generally do need antibiotics and they need follow-up definitely to make sure their ears are getting better, not worse. Professor, with this approach, what would you like to see out of it? Or is there a time span, do you think, where one day in the future where you know young kids wouldn't have to suffer with the, this ear problem? Certainly that's the, the, the goal and I think this is a four-year, well, it's a five years of funding, probably four years on the ground in, in country in these communities with a six-month training program and then transitioning to employment in the service. And we're working with the Territory Government, the Commonwealth Government and the Aboriginal Community-Controlled Health Sector to say, you know what, if this works, this could be a great employment model for the future. Take training out to the communities at the level that that is required and to start people on an employment trajectory. So we have the benefit not only of improving ear health and learning and education, but also providing training and employment. So we're very excited about that aspect of it, that we might be actually really making a big difference to the way employment, uh, training and employment can be delivered on country for people. Yeah, most definitely. One important message would you have out there to community uh, members out there who are living remotely if their children are su- suffering or are telling uh, mum and dad that they are their ears are hurting what message would you have out there to the to the parents to the family members who have little ones that's a great question and often as i said before it's sort of a silent problem we find that most aboriginal children with quite serious ear disease are not saying that's painful uh, they're not experiencing pain so that makes it very difficult for families to understand their child has an ear problem or a hearing problem so it's about watching your kids behavior it may be that they are not doing what you've asked them to do because they didn't hear you you need to get their attention make sure they can see your face get closer to have that conversation read to them a lot in a quiet space and try and think about is that behavior perhaps related to a hearing problem and understanding that that can be managed by the clinic you can go to the clinic and ask for help when you do go to the clinic please ask the Aboriginal health practitioner or the GP or the nurse, please have a look at my kids' ears. I'm worried that they might have that glue ear. Even if it's not a hole in the eardrum, they can still have a really serious problem with what we call glue ear, which stops the ear from 
hearing sound waves or transmitting sound waves to the brain. So it's very important that the service looks at the eardrum and tests with a little pressure test that the eardrum is really moving well and can pass that sound wave onto the brain. Uh, do you have any other important message just about the initiative uh, that you explained before about the or helping the communities up there in the top end? Well, I think if uh, communities are listening to your program and they think that this might be a good thing for their community, they should definitely contact us through Menzies School of Health Research and that's all on the on the web. And it'll be a decision made by local authority, the council. We would like each community to make a community decision that this is an important issue for them, that they would like to be involved. And uh, we know from our research across multiple communities that almost every community has way too much ear disease, much, much more than even the World Health Organization would say it's a public health emergency. So I know that families and communities are struggling with a lot of issues and that ear disease may not be right up there, number one. But here is a program that can start to help. And as you say, into the future, we don't want to see children with these ear and hearing problems. We want them to learn language, keep up with their friends, understand what mum's asking them to do and uh, enjoy being at school and learning. Professor Amanda Leach, I would like to thank you for joining us here on the Karma Network. And yeah, just wish you all the mob up there. I'm sure it will give positive feedback to the community as well. We're very excited about it and almost everyone that we've talked to is excited about it. It's complicated, that's why it's taking a while for us to get it off the ground, but we're talking to lots of different people and everybody wants it to work. It's just about about getting it right so that the government can't say no to this project at the end. We want it to continue on as a um, training, employment and a health and education service throughout. That was Professor Amanda Leach, Joint Chair of the Hearing for Learning Initiative from the Menzies School of Health Research. We'll be right back with more Strong Voices after this. I can see On Tuesday, Northern Territory Treaty Commissioner Mick Dodson announced Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman Ursula Raymond as the Deputy Treaty Commissioner. Her appointment comes following a public expression of interest process. Karma's Carl Dowling recently sat down and had a chat with Dep- the Deputy Anti-Treaty Commissioner. Well, uh, it's great to have you on Karma Radio. Thank you. Well, first of all, just uh, tell us a, a little bit about yourself to begin with. You know, who are we from? Who's your mob? Okay, I come from Darwin. I was born there and grew up there. Uh, my mother's mob are from up that way um, towards the northwest Wyoming River. And my father's mob are Torres Strait. So, big family in Darwin. And in terms of your professional career. I understand you've been involved in a number of different areas. For a long time I worked at the ABC. I worked in media um, and in various media roles outside the ABC. I've worked for Northern Land Council um, and various other community organisations and I've worked for government at various levels and worked around the country here and there. Um, Sydney, Melbourne, um, mostly in Darwin though and I still live there so I've been yeah, there for, for a short time. Well, some big news recently. Uh, you recently announced as the uh, Deputy Northern Territory Treaty Commissioner. Yes. I understand your, your appointment follows a, an expression of interest process. Yes. 
Why did you want to be involved in this process? Because I think it's uh, an important issue for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, and it has been an important issue for our mob since, you know, Captain Cook arrived. It's been a, an issue that has never gone away and I think it's great that the Northern Territory Government has recognised that and has committed to working with Aboriginal people on whether there should be a treaty process. So this is the first time and I think it's an exciting, um, important issue to work on. And for you personally, what what are some of the challenges and and difficulties do you see associated within that role? Obviously, it is quite a big undertaking. I think just making sure we get around to speak to as many people as possible, that's going to be a big challenge. My role is to engage and consult with uh, women and young women, uh, particularly as well. So how we do that, talking to the, the older women and asking, you know, what is the best way to do that for them and also because uh, Mick Dodson the commissioner, I mean you know there are times when he'll not be able to speak to women culturally or because they're, you know, for whatever reason so that's another reason um, so that's that's one of the big challenges but then also explaining the whole process to non-Aboriginal people as well, I think that's going to be the other big challenge because I don't think a lot of people will understand it or think that it's necessary or support it. So we'll just have to work our way through that. So for those who are are unfamiliar, can you just explain a bit about what the actual role of the Treaty Commission is and in particular your role as well as as Deputy Treaty Commissioner in this process? The Northern Territory Government um, and the four Territory Land Councils made an agreement in Barunga last year about engaging in a treaty process. So their support at the highest levels of government and the highest levels in these major Aboriginal organisations. We're not negotiating treaties with anyone. Our role, both mine and the Treaty Commissioner, is to talk to people about whether there should be a, or may be a process towards a treaty. That's what we're doing at the moment. I've only just started, so this is my second day in the job. Mick's been in it for some months now, so he's had quite a lot of meetings with um, some of the major Aboriginal organisations, and so there's still some more to come. Then start of next year, we'll have to start writing a, a report and a discussion paper to present to government in March next year, in 2020, and then um, hopefully that uh, you know, we'll continue on on this whole process and then they will decide from there. So just to clarify, so for now that the process is still going around and, and talking with different people and, and bodies and, and organisations and things like yeah, that? Yeah, the discussions have started already with major uh, Aboriginal organisations and the peak bodies and then once we've gone through that process, then uh, the next phase will be to actually talk with individual communities and, and, different, and, and other groups. So, yeah. So, you know, we're also going to be at the Garma Festival uh, talking to people out there. Just for you personally, in in terms of being an Aboriginal person within that specific role, what what does that mean to you, the significance of that? And having, I guess, sort of these discussions at, at, you know, right across the country, we're seeing Victoria talking about treaties as well. What does that mean to you as an Aboriginal person? You're right. It's it's extremely significant. I take it seriously. Um, I think it's been an issue that I have been interested in for a long time and I never thought that we would actually 
start having this conversation during my lifetime anyway. Um, it's an interesting time to be doing it. It's exciting. And I just think the time must be right because there's it's happening in other places around the country as well. And, you know, it's going to be done in, in various different ways. Um, but hopefully we can, I don't think it's going to be a rushed process, but hopefully we can get there in the end. Well, on that note, uh, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us on Calm Radio. Thank you. That was Ursula Raymond, the recently appointed Northern Territory Deputy Treaty Commissioner. You are tuned into Strong Voices, and we'll be right back with more right after this. G'day, folks. This is Kutcher Edwards, and you're listening to our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. That's right. Uh, you are listening to Strong Voices here on Karma Radio, Aitken FM. And uh, now it is time for the news, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. And joining me in the studio, we have Kyle Darling. Kyle, good morning. Good morning, Damien. Good morning to everyone tuning in around the country today. Yeah, well, what story do you have for us this morning? Well, as you know, at a national level, there's been a lot of discussions around uh, increasing Newstart uh, and uh, the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, also known as NACHO, has also called for government to increase Newstart payments and have welcomed their recent support from the uh, same... Uh, from. The, from Labor, from the Greens, from uh, some of the Nationals and the uh, majority of the crossbenchers. The uh, acting Nacho chair, Ms. Danella Mills, has said a very high number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia struggle to, meet, uh, to make ends meet and urgently require the additional assistance. Uh, she's also went on to say that uh, many people face a daily decision of whether to pay their bills or feed their family, as they are often unable to afford both. According to a uh, 2018 report produced by Deloitte and commissioned by uh, ACOS, after paying their household expenses and bills, many New Start recipients survive on as little as $17 a day. So things like missing meals, you know, sleeping at rough sometimes as well, especially through things like winter or, you know, going through winter without using things like heaters at all. Uh, obviously, things that can then go to impact people's physical health, but also just living within those situations and struggling to meet ends meet also has that impact on your mental uh, your, your yeah. mental side as well. So, uh, Ms. Mills went on to say that, you know, it's people living in, in rural and remote communities that are most affected by high living expenses, and especially when you talk about low employment opportunities as well. So the report by Deloitte found that uh, $75 per week, a $75 per week increase to New Start would assist families and boost well-being in regional communities who are doing it the toughest. Uh, Ms. Mills went on to say that it's unacceptable that while over the last 25 years there has been a drastic increase in, in living, living costs, but there's been no increase to New Start to match those costs. Uh, increasing new start by at least $75 per week, she said that uh, would assist in breaking the cycle of poverty and reduce income disparity and provide better opportunities for all Australians doing it tough and that government should not wait for a uh, parliamentary inquiry to confirm the urgency of such an increase. And I mean, $75 a week is uh, not heaps um but it would like as as she said uh, that would really help families just to get over that line just a little bit each week as well and yeah some play like you said mental health issues um can arise from um the pressures of 
trying to survive and trying to uh, yeah live off a little bit of money. Yeah, and and ultimately the thing is, you know, that's when you talk about new start. Obviously, it's not supposed to be a payment that people are supposed to stay on permanently. It's supposed to be something while you're finding employment. But yeah. it can be quite hard if you're living in those sort of situations to be able to find employment, make sure you have clean clothes and yeah. things like that, and and transport to get to places. As we know, fuel is is really expensive. So mm. stuff like that impacts people's job opportunities as well. So. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, living remote adds on extra mm. costs as well. Well, uh, on that note, uh, Carl, thanks very much for joining us for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. Thanks, Damien. We'll be right back with more Strong Voices after this song. Hey, this is Kathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. The 13th Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair is set to take place from the 9th of 9th to the 11th of August with more than 70 remote community art centres from across the country displaying a wide range of First Nations artwork from the canvas to the runway. I spoke with Executive Director of the Art Fair, Claire Summers, about what we can expect to see at this year's Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair. We have got a really exciting program happening at the 13th Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair this year. We have 70 remote community art centres converging on the Darwin uh, Convention Centre from right across Australia, all through the Northern Territory, of course, but also coming from as far south as Tasmania to as far north as the Kimberley up in Columbaroo. Um, And it's a really, really exciting array of different art from many, many different cultures across this country and it is just so diverse and exciting. And then that's paired with a fabulous public program full of traditional dance, artist workshop masterclasses, kids' activities and so much more. There's even Indigenous food experiences that visitors can be um, immersed in. Claire, I just wanted to ask as well, how much of a change have you seen over the years? This is the 13th. How how much of a growth have you seen coming from the art scene, Aboriginal art scene in, in the Territory or all over the country? I think we've witnessed a real evolution of the Indigenous art scene in Australia over the last 13 years. Um, back in when the event was very young, there was a really strong fine art industry and then of course we saw the market change really rapidly because of the global financial crisis and other things that affected the purchase of high-end art. Um, And then we watched all of our art centres really diversify to be able to accommodate for the change in in the buyer behaviour. Um, of Indigenous art in Australia and and we've rebuilt the industry again. So we've seen ebbs and flows over the last 13 years but it is really exciting now to see people not only really immersing themselves in Indigenous art but really understanding how important it is to buy ethically and how to look to be for the right things um, to make sure that purchases are protecting the rights of artists. Um, And that is what we're seeing growing at a rapid rate now. It's really exciting to see. And and like you said, you know, wanting to protect the rights and... uh of, of the Aboriginal artists and the art centres as well. Darwin art, Aboriginal Art Fair is one of the only art fairs that uh, gives 100% back to the artists. How, how, does, how does that happen? 
That's something we're absolutely proud to be able to do, and it's not easy. Um, an art fair model usually takes a commission in order for that particular organisation to be able to stage these incredible art fairs that you see around the country and around the world. Um, because the Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair Foundation is an Indigenous organisation whose membership is the art centres that we actually represent at our fair, we feel it's really important to make sure that every dollar that is generated by the fair goes back to support our communities. It does mean, however, that SAS is a charity and we are always looking for partners to be able to make sure that our event stays really strong and can grow each year so that those sales can always return back to our art centres. We're all about making sure that we're giving remote community art centres an opportunity to expand their audience participation and to give them new and exciting promotional opportunities to engage not only existing um, buyers, but also brand new buyers. And now we're really focusing on making sure the world has the opportunity to see just these incredible artworks that are being made by art artists right across this country. And Claire, how important do you see that, you know, help and, and, and money just going straight back to the Aboriginal artists and art centres? Look, we do believe in the whole... Economy and the the economy of art does also include what we call a secondary market, which are our galleries and and our art collectors and our art buyers. The, their role is so integral to the the health of the marketplace. What we do want to see though is that artists are in fact having that money returned back to them, which is fair and equitable. And that's the role of art centres. They're the ones who are making sure that the artists are really getting what is owed to them, what is rightfully theirs as an artist, and also that the art centres themselves can continue to operate as well. So it is a really robust system if buyers out there understand that when they are buying artwork that has come from gallerists who support the art centres, then they know that they are buying ethically and the artists are actually receiving what it, what is deemed to be ethical in our marketplace. There are also other, other things in place, like the resale royalty too, which is, is developing and ensuring that when artwork does get resold, then there are opportunities for the artist to also um, be able to see a little bit more of those resale dollars happening. And Claire, like you said before, I mean, um, you know, the, the whole uh, evolution of Aboriginal art, um, you know, for a lot of people doing a lot of the fine arts a long time ago, uh, some of the crafts and, and, and wooden um, artifacts and stuff like that as well, to now, you know, um, fashion and, uh, you know, furnishings and, and all that kind of stuff. How, how exciting is that? Oh, look, the world is our oyster now. Um, it, is, it is amazing to see, you know, what we used to see in traditional practices now being reinvented and interpreted, like you said, across fashion and textiles and making their way into homewares as well. And it's different ways of telling stories. So high-end art can speak to one person, but everybody can engage with something like fashion because we all wear clothes. And what, what 
is um, so amazing about the fashion is that we can feel proud to be able to wear these incredible Indigenous designs. And there's a lot of work that we still need to do to ensure that the industry remains ethical and that we are operating according to best standard practices in this space. But it is something that's certainly exciting and it's just different ways of telling the incredible stories and these ancient stories um, that have been communicated in this country for over 60,000 years. Like you, like you're saying as well, we want to make sure that um, you know the sale of art is is ethical and, and helping um, the artists and the art centres and and things like that. And we've seen a lot of uh, manufactured fake art out there and and really um, you know hurting the uh, Aboriginal art scene. What what do you have to say to you know people that are doing this? We can send a really strong message, and, and that is handed down recently in a landmark case where we've said enough is enough, and you will be fined, and you will be found out if you are doing the wrong thing by our Indigenous artists. The artwork that, that appears in something that is called Indigenous art, those stories and those designs belong to families and cultures that have spanned hundreds of thousands, you know, tens of thousands of years, and it is so disrespectful to replicate it for the sake of tourism. And when we replicate it for the sake of making sure that a tourist can take away a piece of Australia with them, we want to make sure that it is actually coming from Indigenous artists in this country. We want to make sure that that tourist does have a genuine piece of art to take with them. And we want to also make sure that when tourist art is purchased, it then has an economic impact on our Aboriginal communities. And Claire, just along those lines as well, just wondering, like, how how can we, um, you know, put a stop to say people saying oh it's it's aboriginal art inspired art like you know what i'm trying to say like what if what if someone's um you know taking inspiration from aboriginal art and um not saying it is aboriginal art but how do we sort of stop that kind of thing happening as well I think it's our responsibility and here at the Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair Foundation we see it as part of our responsibility to educate audiences. It is only by ensuring that our message is strong and it is sent loud and clear across this country, not just through the art sector but through our schools and, and at the, at, you know, through our entire education process, we need to be taught that these stories do belong to somebody. They belong to a people. And even to be inspired means that... that I think it's fantastic that people can feel inspired by Indigenous art, but they need to actually have a depth of understanding about what they're being inspired by. And to try and replicate someone's artwork is also trying to replicate their spirituality and their stories. And I think if people truly understood that that is in fact what they are doing, they might think twice about whether or not they choose to be inspired um, in that way. I think there are other sources of inspiration they can take, not just by copying Indigenous-style art. And I think it's a message that we need to sing loud and proud across this country and it needs to be repeated in every single corner until it starts to resonate and you know, other Australians and other artists across the world understand the significance of what these 
styles and types of artwork are actually trying to communicate to us. It's who these people are, and a lot of artists do stuff that comes from them and their people. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, I think there's a lot still to be done, and I think the job will never be done. We have to continue making sure that our stories are heard and that we are actually helping people understand that it's great to be able to be inspired, but... Let's let's take our inspiration from the incredible um, landscapes of Australia. Let's take our our inspiration from the strength of our um, First Nations people in this country and and their cultures. But let's let's not replicate what's something that is so inherently theirs. Claire, the fair is happening from the 9th to the 11th. uh, And uh, just wanted to ask, uh, you know, if people wanted to get I know it's a pretty um it's it's coming up really close but uh if people wanted to get involved with the fair how could they do that we certainly have all of our participants this year already locked in and ready to go but certainly if you are wanting to get involved in this fair and visit it and become part of all of our public program um, you just need to contact um us here at the DAF office or jump on our website at uh, DAF au, and there's plenty there to see and plenty of things at our fair to come and immerse yourself in. We do have the fashion shows on as well and we have two incredible fashion shows on the 7th of August. One is a collaboration between Gorman and Munkaja Arts and that's on at 7 o'clock at the Darwin Convention Centre and then at 8.30 is our main event which is from Country to Couture which uh, will showcase 10 boutique collections that will also celebrate Beamerware's 50th anniversary. So you can get your tickets at Darwin Festival website. On that note, uh, Claire, thanks very much for talking to us here on Karma Radio. It was so great, great to chat to you today. Thanks for having me. That was Executive Director of the Darwin Aboriginal Art Fair, Claire Summers, ending that report. And that brings us to the end of Strong Voices for today. Thanks to all our guests for, taking, for talking on the show today. Strong Voices.